Good morning. It is great to see you this morning. We're thankful for the opportunity to be together. Thankful for Brian leading us in singing. Thankful for Brian subtly suggesting that Travis turn the mic down before I get up here. Uh, thankful for uh, Travis and his leading us in prayer and Gary and his leading us in our thoughts as we partake of the Lord's Supper. All those who have participated in leading us, but especially all of you who are here to participate in it. We're thankful to those who are visiting with us. We have a few uh, who are not normally with us. I guess Marvin and Ann get the sticker for most visitors for the day. We're thankful to see their family uh, with them and thankful for uh, all of you who, who might be with us today. It's always a good day when we have those who are interested in placing membership with the congregation here. And we're thankful uh, for the Heron family as most of you have gotten to know them over the last little bit. But we're thankful for them being with us here uh, and their work that they've done so far and uh, the good folks that they are. Uh, as we think about new folks being with us, it might be uh, helpful to remind you at this time about our, our dinner or breakfast that we're doing, our Christmas breakfast, which will be on December the 10th, uh, and that'll be $10 per plate uh, for the uh, breakfast buffet that we'll have here. We have that kind of catered in, the food brought in from uh, Anthony and Teresa's kitchen or home cooking over in the Sequatchie Valley there, and some of you were a part of that last year. Uh, if you need help with that, that money, you can talk to the elders. They'd be willing to, to help with that. We want to make mention of it, but as I mentioned, we have some new folks uh, and just to say, we, we didn't, I guess, do it maybe in 2020, but we did have it again last year. But it's usually just a time for us to get together and enjoy some good food. We also usually have some uh, songs or skits that are just a little bit fun, uh, kind of in the Christmas spirit and a chance for us uh, to enjoy time together. Uh, we were thinking about this recently. Uh, those were the occasions before uh, the last couple of years where we could get together and have a meal uh, we didn't do that as often. Now that we're together most Sundays, we're usually eating together uh, more than we used to, but it's still a time for enjoyment, for fun and laughter. And if you can be a part of that, uh, if you have any questions, you can see Hannah or myself or she's been collecting the money for that uh, so that we can get that over to those folks and then have the food here that morning and just enjoy a good time together. I know it's around the holiday season and so folks sometimes have family get-togethers, uh, but we'll start around 8 or 9 that morning and have breakfast and then our our time of fun and, and be done with the day. So if you have other things you need to get to, uh, we'd love for you to be a part of that. And then you can go about maybe other family business that you have. If you look at your outlines for this morning, if you have your bulletin in front of you, you'll notice again that we're going to kind of connect the two lessons and talk about a theme this morning. There are some outlines in there again. And I wanted to make mention that I received a, a text message yesterday, several of us did, of a picture of this projector over here that was working. So we're getting closer, we're not all the way there, and we weren't going to try to just kind of half do it this morning, but we appreciate Travis and his work. I know he was here yesterday morning because that's when I got the picture. Uh, Hannah and I had somewhere to be over in Chattanooga last night. We drove by the building at about 5 o'clock and his car was here, and we came back by the building at about 9 o'clock and his car wasn't here, so I was thankful for that. But Travis has put a lot of time in here and others helping him working on our projectors, and we hope maybe by next Sunday, but certainly in the next couple of weeks, those will be up and running again for us so we can enjoy our singing and maybe an outline as a PowerPoint to go along with the lesson. You know, when you span across all different religious groups and you span across all types of thinking, there are many different things that are emphasized when it comes to salvation, right? When you ask someone on the street, someone maybe that you work with about salvation, what the Bible says a person must do to be saved, there, there are all kinds of different things that are often pointed out or are emphasized, maybe given a little more emphasis than something else. We think about John 3.16, of course. So many folks in the world can quote John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever 
believes, right? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So many people point to something like John 3, 16, which is absolutely true and absolutely inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they talk about belief. So they say all a person has to do is believe. He says he who believes can have everlasting life, and that's true. Many other folks emphasize confession, right? They talk about confession, they talk about this idea that you just need to either pray the sinner's prayer or you need to say something, often in that maybe sinner's prayer. They might vary based on specific groups, but there's the idea that Jesus is Lord or Jesus is the Son of God. And so some people talk about confession, and that's what they'll emphasize. They say, what do I need to do to be saved? They'll talk about belief. They'll talk about confession, and here's the thing about the lesson this morning. Even we ourselves sometimes are very quick to push someone towards baptism. And rightfully so in one sense because it's in baptism that we come in context with the blood of or come in contact contact, excuse me, with the blood of Christ. Right? We just looked at in our young adult class this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 and 4 where Paul talks about the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again. And so we emphasize the water because that is the place in which we can die to ourselves and to sin, be buried, and then rise again to walk in newness of life. But very often, that's what we want to talk to someone into, so to speak, if you'll allow me to say it that way. We'll emphasize so much baptism, baptism. But the question this morning is, what is actually the hardest part? Because you may know people, there are a lot of folks who it's real easy. It's real easy to, to come here, it's real easy to change clothes, it's real easy to get down into the water. That's not hard. So what is actually the hardest part when it comes to someone being a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, becoming a Christian? Well, we already have the answer as we look at this afternoon's lesson because we're going to talk about in our one word emphasis, the word repent. You see, I think we could make a, a good argument that the hardest part is repentance. It's repentance. Now, what is it? If you have your outline in front of you, what is it? Repentance, just the simplest, easy definition is that it is a change of mind that leads to a change in action or a change in life. A change of mind that leads to a change of action or a change of life. A change of behavior, we might also say. That's what repentance is. If you've been with us for any amount of time, you've heard me say that. Both on Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon and even on Wednesday night. When we stand here and we emphasize the gospel plan of salvation, when we extend Jesus' invitation or heaven's invitation, it involves repentance. And repentance is a change of mind that leads to a change of life. I heard one preacher who was discussing this, and he said that he had been talking to a counselor, a professional counselor who, who interviewed and, and, I guess, counseled lots of people, folks who were addicts, maybe they had an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction, and most of those addicts would say very upfront to the counselor that they were tired of the lies. They were tired of the web of trouble and deceit that they were caught up in. They couldn't seem to get loose of it, but they were tired of living that way. They were tired of it. But the counselor would usually tell them, as most of them said, I want out. He would say, you have to change your playground and you have to change your playmates. 
That's kind of a, a fundamental, almost kindergarten level way of saying an example. But yes, for many people, if we want to change our life, we've got to change the area maybe in which we're working or playing or whatever, living. And sometimes we need to change the people that we are around. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. Let's see it in a very simple picture. If you have your Bible, look in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse number 28, Jesus is going to tell another parable. Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. This is a very simple picture of repentance that we see it here. From the mouth of Jesus. But what do you think, he begins. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered the son and said, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. Now, depending on the version you have in front of you, the King James, it may actually use that word, repent, that he repented. The New King James says he regretted it. The English Standard Version says he actually changed his mind. But notice what he does. He doesn't just change his mind. Hopefully in all versions, it says that he changed his mind, he regretted it, he repented, and he went. A change of mind, yes, that leads to a change of action, a change of life, a change of behavior. It's not just this particular instance, but how many times in life, but are we, boy, are we sorry for a situation. Boy, I wish I hadn't have done that, or I know I shouldn't do this, and, and I'm, I'm just sorry about it, but I'm not actually going to stop. I'm not actually going to change. You know, it's maybe extreme. A lot of times if folks are willing to go all the way to the point of baptism, being immersed in the water, they'll change their life, even if it's just for a short while. It's maybe an extreme case to think that someone who is doing something very sinful, whether it be an adulterous relationship or, or alcoholism or addiction of some sort or whatever, that they would be baptized and then go right back to what they're doing the next day. But some people do. And for many of us, that's exactly the way we treat repentance. We'll come to the front. We'll say we're sorry. We'll change our mind for a few minutes, hours, maybe a couple of days. But we don't actually change our habits, our life, our actions, our behaviors. So this is what it is. But let's continue down that road of what it is not. You should have two blanks there. The first one is confession. What it is not, it is not confession. It's not confession. In fact, do you know that in the Old Testament, two fellas we know pretty well. One, Pharaoh. The second, King Saul. First of all, Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 9 and verse number 27, Exodus 9, 27, Pharaoh says these words. Did you know he even said them? I have sinned. He made a good confession. He made a confession. You go over to 1 Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel 15 verses 24 and also again in verse 30. 1 Samuel 15, 24 and 30 and King Saul says these words. Did you know he said them? I have sinned. In fact, if you go back to the Old Testament, both Pharaoh and King Saul are the two places that we hear it the most. Somebody says, I have sinned, and it's these two guys. But that's all they did. They said it. They made confession, but they didn't actually change their life. The example that we know most, and by the, by the way, this afternoon, we're going to come back and talk about some of the words associated with the Bible, but also talk about several examples. The example that we usually talk about, that maybe you know the most, is of course found in Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. Old Judas, 
Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5, can I suggest for your thinking this morning that no one, no one in that moment is sadder than Judas. Jesus has been betrayed. Jesus is going to the cross. And no one is sadder in that moment than Judas. Judas regretted it. Judas repented. In fact, if you turned over there, depending on the version you have, you may actually see that phrase. The New King James says in verse number 3 that he was remorseful. But some of you may see that word that he repented. What he did was he confessed. He felt remorse. He goes before those group of chief priests and elders and he confesses. But he doesn't change his life. He doesn't go to Jesus, or at least as close as he can get, and say, I'm sorry, and I've done wrong, and I want to change. We know the account that he goes and he hangs himself. Judas made confession. King Saul, Pharaoh, many other people make confession, but that's not repentance. Number two, repentance is not emotion. It's not emotion. If you have your Bible, look in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. Paul here gives us another wonderful idea of what repentance really is and that it's not just emotion. He says for even, in verse number 8, for even if I made you sorry. What's that? That's, that's emotion. We make our kids sorry sometimes that they've done something. Maybe we punish them so much that they're sorry that they did it, but are they actually going to change their action? Are they going to do it again? Sometimes that's left up to the future. He says, now I'm, I'm, made, I'm made sorry, for even I made you sorry with my letter. I do not regret it, though I did regret it for a time. For if I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Boy, we can see Paul writing to us, can't we? Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow, your emotion, which is not repentance, led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We might say lots of people are sorry, lots of people have emotion, but that sorrow of the world, that only emotion, leads to death. It doesn't lead to true repentance. It's godly sorrow that might include emotion, but it also leads to change. See, there's nothing wrong with coming to the front, as we'll do in just a few moments. We'll sing. We'll ask you to stand, and we'll ask you to come to the front if you'd like to share your heart, if you'd like to make a change in your life. There's nothing wrong with crying. Many folks do. It's emotional. Emotion is not wrong, but emotion is also not repentance see unfortunately sometimes people come to this front row and maybe they've written a statement they've written a letter and they say i'm sorry that i did this or i'm sorry that i've not been faithful to the church or to services or whatever but they don't actually make a commitment to changing their actions they're sorry and maybe they cry tears but it takes action as well someone once said that repentance is not when you cry it's when you change Repentance is not when you cry, it's when you change. In fact, the prophet Joel said it long ago, Joel chapter 2 and verse 13. God says, turn to me with all your heart, so rend your heart and not your garments. 
What did people usually do in the Old Testament? They tore their clothes and they sat in sackcloth and ashes, didn't they? They, they made an outward show of it. They made something that showed that they had emotion. They rendered their garments. Joel says, by God, don't rend your garments. You can tear your clothes. You can cry. You can roll around on the ground. But I need you to rend your heart. I need you to change your life, not just cry about it. Repentance is not confession. Repentance is not emotion. But here's another thing that repentance is, and this is not in your outline, but it is also a biblical theme. It is also, we might even say, a biblical command. We've already noticed from the Old Testament, Joel, but go back to the rest of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1 and verses 11 through 17. Isaiah 1 verses 11 through 17. Isaiah begins his account by talking about how unfaithful they were. Hear the word of the Lord. You rulers of Sodom, give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Verse 11, Isaiah 1. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord. He says, you're doing all this stuff physically, but what is the purpose? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. Wait a minute, God, haven't you been telling us to do these things? Aren't we commanded to offer this blood and these sacrifices? And he's saying, yes, but you're only going through the, the motion and you're not actually changing anything. Go down to verse 16. He continues to sort of hammer them home about these things. And in verse 16, he says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, rebuke, re, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. All of these things involve change, repentance. In the Old Testament, it's a theme that people need to repent. You go forward to Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. This is the passage that I preached on my very first sermon here when I actually tried out, right? Seek ye the old paths, stand in the old ways, and see, ask for the old paths, where the good way is, and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But what do the people say to God? We will not. We're not going to do it. We don't care. We're not going to change. But in the Old Testament, whether it be Joel, whether it be Isaiah, whether it be Jeremiah, there is this theme of repent. They're not told to be baptized. They're not living under the new law. Jesus has not come to the earth yet, but they're told to repent. We go to the New Testament and we see repentance. Luke 13 and verse 3 is the passage that we usually quote. It's the one that's usually on the slide as we talk about the gospel plan of salvation. But do you remember there that they're questioning Jesus about something that had happened? Pilate had taken the lives of some Galileans. And the question is about maybe sometimes that those who suffer the most are the ones who sin the most. But Jesus says, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? What does he say? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will perish. But he doesn't stop there. He's got another example on, on hand. He says that there were 18 people on which a tower fell and killed them. So he says, do you think that they were worse? Do you think that they were worse sinners than everyone else? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will perish. 
Are those who suffer most the most evil people? No. I know this room. I know some of you that have suffered through many things. And you're not the most evil people. That's not how it works. However, Jesus says the lesson is when tragedy comes, many will be unprepared unless they repent. When those trials come, like a tower falling or people getting killed, we are not prepared unless we repent. Repentance is a message of the Old Testament. Repentance is a message of the New Testament. In fact, look at Matthew chapter 4. And can I suggest for you of something that I'm even guilty of quite often? In Matthew chapter, in the book of Matthew, we often go to Matthew chapter 5. And what do we call that? We call it Jesus' first sermon, don't we? The Sermon on the Mount. But if you go back to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, we might get Jesus' first sermon. And most of you might like it because it's a lot shorter than the second one, right? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. But Matthew 4 verse 17, he says what? Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Jesus' first sermon. And what does it include? It includes repentance. You go to the end of Luke's account, Luke chapter 24, verses 44 through 47, and what does Jesus say there? In what is Luke's account of the Great Commission, Jesus says that as they are to go forth, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. What is the message that is going to be preached? Repentance. Repentance. And of course, I know that you know as we go forward to the book of Acts, I know that you know that Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, as Peter preaches that first gospel sermon, he tells them to repent. Repent and let every one of you be baptized. But have you ever noticed before that as you go forward to Acts chapter 3 and verse number 19, when Peter preaches that second sermon, we might say, what does he say? He says, repent. You go forward to Acts chapter 17, verses 30 through 31. And Paul is preaching one of his sermons there. And what does he say? Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. They had to offer sacrifices. We offer our lives as a daily sacrifice. They had to offer sacrifices. We are baptized for the remission of sins. But a biblical theme has always been changing your mind, which leads to a change of life. Repentance. We also see it, as we've already noticed, in several places in the Bible in action. I want to give this to you, if you have your outline in front of you from the bulletin, the answers to the blanks there for in action is Luke 15. But I'm going to ask you not to turn there just yet. Luke 15. I don't want to confuse you as you're jotting down notes there. Luke 15. But first, let's go to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, then we'll come back to Luke 15. Psalm 51 is a prayer of repentance. Everybody, I think it's pretty safe to say, almost everybody in the world knows the story of David, right? Not just David, not just David and Goliath, but David and Bathsheba. When we tell the story of David, quite often we tell the story of David and Bathsheba. When we tell the story of David, we quite often talk about the sin. When we tell the story of David, we quite often talk about the confrontation that comes after, right? Nathan confronts him and tells him this story, and he says, you are the man. He tells David, you're the one who's done wrong here, and we talk about the confrontation. We also talk about the crime that David sometimes goes through, the change of his life right there. 
But when we tell the story of David after he had gone into Bathsheba, we don't always connect with it, the 51st Psalm. We tell the sin, we tell the confrontation, but not the crying out in repentance. As you look at the 51st Psalm, it oozes. It just bleeds. It just cries with tears of, I am sorry, confession, I have done wrong, with tears, emotion, but also repentance. So much so that we put it in a song, our young people usually sing it, beginning in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. When we think about David and what he has done, this is a beautiful, beautiful psalm of repentance. We see it in action because we see what David did. We see the confrontation where he's reminded that he's the one who has sinned and he's wrong. And we also get the repentance, the change, the feeling, the emotion, all of it that goes into it. But certainly David makes a change. Now, very quickly, go back with me to Luke 15. Luke chapter 15. You know Luke 15 because more often than not, we misunderstand it just a little bit too. There's a lot of truth there, don't get me wrong, in the stories that we tell and the sermons that we preach. So often when we turn to Luke chapter 15, we talk about the lost. We talk about the lost sheep. We talk about the lost coin. We talk about the lost or prodigal son. Great parables, great accounts for us to think about our lives, to think about what Jesus wants us to know. But do you ever recall that in Luke chapter 15 and verse number 7, Jesus says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who does what? Repents. The lost sheep is important. But when he makes the connection to them and to us, he's talking about repentance. Go down to verse 17, or excuse me, go down to verse 10 first. Jesus says, likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who does what? Repents. The lost coin, it's important. Seeking that lost coin is important. But Jesus talks about repentance. The picture that we so often paint, though, from Luke 15 begins in verse 17. When the young man comes to himself and he says, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Unless you forget our definition, he's had the self-conversation, right? He's changed his mind. But verse 20 reminds us, he arose. He arose and he went. He had the change of mind, but it leads to a change in action. You see, Luke 15 is about lost things. It's about enjoying the saving of those lost things, the finding of those lost things, but it's also about repentance. We see it in action when each one says, repent. Why is it that repentance is the hardest part? Can I suggest for you that for us, we often want Christianity without conversion that's what we want we want christianity without conversion 
We want forgiveness without forsaking. But Jesus says, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, if you're going to be a follower of Christ, a Christian, you've got to convert. You've got to change. You've got to repent. Jesus says, if you want to be forgiven by my blood, you've got to forsake the worldly ways. You've got to change. You can't just change your mind. You can't just cry a lot. You've got to actually go through with repentance and change. We said it isn't just emotion. There should be emotion, but it manifests itself in proper behavior. In fact, repentance is, part, repentance is the hardest part, in part, because re, a part of repentance is invisible. Isn't it? Have you ever thought about that? A part of repentance is invisible. Because we can't see into each other's heart to know whether or not a person is truly committing to change or whether they're just trying to give you the answer you want to hear. Or whether they're just trying to enjoy the benefits of joining the church, quote unquote, without actually having to change their lives, without actually having to convert, without actually having to forsake the worldly ways that they've been in. On July 2nd, 1983, John William McGarvey, who most of you know as J.W. McGarvey, preached a sermon in Louisville, Kentucky that was simply titled Repentance. McGarvey would say in that sermon that if God were giving miraculous gifts, he would not ask for the gift of healing or the gift of prophecy or the gift of tongues. Rather, he would ask for the power above everything else to cause men to repent. He said this in that sermon, the greatest obstacle to the salvation of men is the stubbornness of the human will. There's so much truth there. We usually talk about hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. I think repentance is truly the hardest part because it's real easy to say, I believe, it's real easy to say that in front of others as we talk about making the good confession before men. It's real easy even to climb into the water and to get wet, but it's really, 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 really hard to change our lives, to change our mind and then allow that to lead to a change in action, a change in our life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never repented of your sins. We'll be singing a song in just a moment to encourage you that you would consider doing that changing your mind, changing your life, becoming a Christian by coming in contact with the blood of Christ in baptism, rising again out of that water, not to have the dirt washed off your skin, but to have the sin removed from your life, to walk in newness of life. The Lord will add you to his church and you can begin to live faithfully serving him. A change of life. Maybe you're here and you've done that in times past. You're a Christian, but you've wandered away. Maybe more often than not, you think about making a change. You want to repent. As we said earlier, maybe you even come to the front and you cry and you say you're sorry for something that you've done, but you don't actually change your life. We're thankful for this opportunity that presents itself, the song that's been selected, that through its words we might encourage you. If you need to become a Christian or maybe you need to truly repent in your life, confess your sin and pray to God for forgiveness, to come back to him as we usually say, we're thankful for that opportunity as well. But understand that it involves us doing something more than just lip service, but actually changing our mind, rending our heart. If we can assist you in any way, come forward as we stand together and as we sing.